Good morning. Our passage for today is Philippians 1, 1 and 2. That's on page 1164. Again, Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. One of our kids is doing a project at school where you mail a flat paper man named Stanley to someone somewhere else in the country and they take a picture of Stanley doing something with them and mail it back. And I gather the point of the project is really to learn about how to address a letter and write a letter and how to send a letter. We learn the envelope needs to be addressed in a certain way, right? The, uh, your address goes in the upper corner, the stamp goes in this corner, and in the center who you're sending it to. And then the, the actual letter itself, you write, dear so-and-so, here's my message, sincerely yours, such and such, right? That we learn that in school, how to write a letter. Well, in the ancient world, there was also a very specific way that a letter would be written, a format. Uh, they begin by writing the name of the author of the letter, then who it's to, and then a greeting. Uh, so a letter from a woman in Egypt uh, that we have a copy of begins, Diogenesis to her brother Alexandros, greetings. Another letter from a soldier to his father begins, Appion to his father and lord Epimachos, many good wishes. Well, I think you see in Philippians 1 and in all of Paul's letters the same basic format. The author, the recipient, and a greeting. And yet such is Paul's gospel focus that it even transforms the way that he heads his letters. Compared to these typical ancient letters, which simply said name to name, greetings, Paul's openings are bursting at the seams. In the opening of Philippians, we see all the main themes of the letter laid out here in these two verses. The centrality of Christ Jesus mentioned three times in these two verses. Being in Christ servanthood, fellowship, our calling as Christians that our life is lived by grace from God the Father. This is a friendly letter. Paul doesn't have any uh, discipline to be reaching out to this church that he's writing to. He's not correcting them. It's a friendly letter of exhortation to a people formed by God in their identity and common life from Paul and Timothy who share a common bond with the Philippians that they all alike are in Christ Jesus. I want us to see this morning two truths in this opening about how God forms his people. So kids, there will be two main points this morning, just so we're all on the same page. The first, God sets apart a people, and second, God gives his people leaders. First, God sets apart a people. God sets apart a people. I think we might rightly expect this letter to begin something like this. St. Paul to the church in Philippi, or St. Paul to the Christ, Christian Philippians. But that's not how the letter begins, is it? It begins, slave Paul to the saints in Philippi. This tells us something important about how Paul sees himself and how he sees the church. The Philippians, uh, this church, they're Philippians by nature, but saints by grace. What does it mean to be a saint? 
Saints are often talked about in an unhelpfully unbiblical way in our day. So we think of a saint as someone who's particularly pious. They're really good at religion. They're extra moral. Being a saint is sort of, uh, we think of it as being like lettering in religion or the Heisman Trophy for going to church, right? That special accomplishment in Christianity, something along those lines. Well, the word translated saint comes from the word holy. Literally, Paul is saying to the holy ones in Christ in Philippi. But they're holy saints by their calling, by God's word, not by their moral or religious achievements. Everyone in this church he writes to, everyone in our church is equally called a saint, a holy one. Well then, what does it mean to be holy? In the Bible, holy is a special word for describing God. J.I. Packer summarizes, holy signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. It covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness and moral perfection, and thus holiness is an attribute of all his attributes, pointing to the godness of God at every point. What he means holiness is an attribute of his attributes is that God's love is a holy love. God's goodness is holy goodness. His justice is holy justice, and so forth. Well, in the Bible, uh, a person's name oftentimes signifies something about their character. Uh, Abraham is given this new name, Abraham, with the promise, you'll be the father of many. And Abraham means father of many. Uh, it signifies something about his character. Well, in the Bible, uh, when it praises God's holy name, as in Psalm 97 in our call to worship, praise his holy name, it's saying something fundamental about God's character. He is holy. When Isaiah has this vision of God in the temple, the angels around about God's throne are covering their faces and crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her she's going to bear the Messiah, he says, The Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are holy. They're equally transcendent in their greatness and moral perfection. Okay, God is holy, set apart from creation. Then when God pronounces other things to be holy, his temple, his altar, his priests, his people, it means that they are set apart for God's own purposes. So a saint, then, is a holy one, because they are set apart by God for his own purposes. How does God set apart a people? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us in this opening section that saints are those who are reoriented away from themselves towards Christ. The Christian is set apart because their life is in, of, and from Christ Jesus. Do you see that in these opening verses? Paul writes to the saints in Christ Jesus. He writes to them as a servant of Christ Jesus, by the grace which is from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian's holiness is in, of, and from Christ Jesus. God sets apart a people to live in Christ Jesus. 
This in is comprehensive. It's built up throughout the book. I told you this opening is like a preview of the letter as a whole, and so hear how this is built out. God's saving purposes are centered in Jesus and worked out by him. Three times in this opening verses, Jesus is not simply called Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Israel's hope and consolation. The anointed king come to redeem his people. In chapter 2, uh, 6 through 11, it tells us that Christ crosses the chasm between the holy God and his sinful creatures and then returns to heaven. 3.14, Paul says God calls us upward to himself in Christ Jesus. This call is not an invitation but a royal summons, a command from the Lord, which God makes effective, 129 tells us, by giving us the gift of faith to respond by believing in Christ Jesus. In Christ, then, we are secure. 419 says our every need is supplied in Christ Jesus. 1.8 says in Christ we have new feelings, the affections of Christ. In Christ we have a new mind, so 2 verse 5. New encouragement, so 2 verse 1. New strength, so 4 verse 12. In Christ we have a new secure life. But it's not just that we are given benefits in Christ. This new secure life is lived in Christ Jesus himself. To be set apart by God means to be united to Christ himself. So that Paul writes to the Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And to the Colossians, Paul writes, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christians are set apart by God as holy in Christ Jesus, united to Christ. God sets apart this people to serve Christ. In ancient letters, in the opening, an author might try to distinguish him or herself by their relation to someone more important. You know, I'm the son of so-and-so, I'm the niece of so-and-so, whatever that is. But for Paul, there can be no greater honor than this that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul's greatest distinction is that he belongs to and serves Christ. You see in our pew Bibles, there's a footnote next to the word servant, and it tells you that it's the Greek word doulos, which is where we incidentally get our English word doula. Uh, the word means slave, but the Bible doesn't use that word in its translation because in the ancient world, slavery wasn't race-based as it was in recent centuries. So they don't want you to get confused by what's happened in modern America or recent America with this ancient practice. In the ancient world, some slaves occupied very high positions in society. Other slaves were treated very cruelly. It really all depended on who you belonged to. But that's the basic idea of being a slave. You belong to someone else. That's the point Paul makes here. Me and Timothy, we belong to Christ Jesus. If St. Paul's greatest honor was being a slave of Christ Jesus, then it is certainly true of each of us as well. The saint lives in Christ Jesus as a servant of Christ Jesus. The Christian is holy, a saint by God's call, not their own moral achievements. But this call is a vocation. It entails a duty. We're called to serve Christ. 
We're set apart for, by God for his own purposes, to glorify him and enjoy him in our worship and our work. God sets apart a people then in Christ to serve Christ by grace from Christ. In Greek as in English, uh, greeting and grace sound kind of similar. And so Paul's kind of has a little play on words here. Instead of the typical greeting, he uses the word grace. A reminder that God is the source of their common life. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. It's a little bit awkward word order there, but it reminds us that first God gives us grace and then peace is the result. This new holy life that is given to the Christian is by grace alone, by God's undeserved help to the helpless, by unmerited salvation being given to the meritless sinner. That's grace. But then in Luke 24, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus meets his disciples for the first time and he pronounces to them a benediction. Peace be to you. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished God's gracious purposes, and as a result, we have peace. Peace in three dimensions, three-dimensional peace. We have Godward peace. Although we have rejected God, rebelled against him, ignored him, worshiped God's gifts instead of God himself, although in short we have destroyed our relationship with God, Jesus has given himself to restore that broken relationship. And so we have peace with God. In the second dimension, we now have inward peace. There's no more guilt or shame. My life is now in Christ. My value is in Christ, that he gave his own life for me. What greater value could your life have than that? Meaning is found in Christ, who has set me apart for his service. And then we have outward peace. Through Christ's work, there's the possibility for harmony in Christian relationships, in Christian churches, in Christian communities, in Christian homes. Well, this all takes place in an external con uh, context. Paul addresses these, this church as saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. They are in two places, is what Paul's saying. We might say they're dual citizens. They're citizens of Philippi. Uh, which is a prominent city in, in the ancient Roman world, but more importantly, they are citizens of Christ. To be a holy people means to be set apart. But biblical separation is not a negative reaction to the world, but a positive response to God's grace given to us. Repeatedly through the Old Testament, God calls Israel, be holy as I am holy. And now that vocation is extended to the church. Christians then are to live as dual citizens. The Philippians still work in the world. They're still called to love their neighbors, to respect their civil authorities, to participate in economic life, all those sorts of things in the city of Philippi. And yet at the same time, they're called to a fundamentally different pattern of life, to live in a different order. This pattern of life is characterized, for example, as we'll see tonight in Mark 10, by serving others rather than being served. Well, this brings us to a second truth, uh, the, the community life lived together that I want us to catch in this passage. And the second truth is this, that God gives his people leaders. God gives his people leaders. Do you see in these opening verses, everything is in plural. 
Plural authors write to a plural audience and their plural leaders. Paul and Timothy write together a model of partnership to the Philippians. We mostly hear Paul's voice speaking in the first person, but he is not a lone ranger apostle. If you read through the book of Acts, his ministry is characterized by always having partners who are traveling with him, a sort of cadre or fellowship that travels about doing ministry. And in fact, most of Paul's letters have co-authors, if you go through Paul's letters. We can read Philippians individually with great benefit, but in the first instance, Paul writes to all the saints in Philippi, to a congregation, to read together corporately. To be joined to Christ is to be joined to other Christians, unavoidably so. And the church provides a faithful witness to Christ when our fellowship provides a plausible answer to the isolation alienation and divisions that rack our world. But note, this letter is addressed to the fellowship and the leadership in Philippi, to the saints and the overseers, or with the overseers and deacons. Before we uh, consider individually these offices, notice that both terms are plural. The overseers, there's more than one, and the deacons, there's more than one. The consistent pattern in the early church is that congregations would be led by a plurality of leaders, not just a single overseer, but a group of overseers, a group of deacons. And finally, the very dynamic that Paul is sending a letter, if you think about it, implies that even the church at Philippi as a whole, with their overseers and deacons, is not self-sufficient. It doesn't stand on its own, but it stands in relationship to other churches. It needs encouragement, exhortation, accountability from outside their church. That's why the early churches sent letters back and forth. They, they stood together in relationship with churches in other cities round about the world. To be set apart in Christ is to become a member of Christ's people, the church, and that's a community with its own ethos and its own leadership. Well, what then are overseers and deacons? First, we need to note in the early church, there seems to be flexibility in response to the individual circumstances of individual churches. That is to say, nowhere in the New Testament do we have a list. Here's all the duties and responsibilities of overseers. Here's all the duties and responsibilities of deacons. Uh, It assumes that we need these offices to help lead the church, but it doesn't say they can do only this and not this or that sort of thing. There's flexibility allowed. And if we get too caught up in institutional structures and the polity of the church, we lose sight of the early church's grassroots, flexible cooperation and its missional focus. You can get stuck. uh, As elders, we read together a book called The Trellis and the Vine, and the whole metaphor is Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And and as a church, we're meant to be in Christ, the vine. And a trellis supports a vine, just like Sunday school and all the things we do supports a vine. Uh, And yet you can get caught up spending so much time taking care of the trellis, you forget all about the vine. Uh, And churches get like that. We get so caught up on our various activities, we forget about abiding in Christ, that central truth. Anyways, that's getting off notes. Let me get back here. Second, we need to remember what we have just seen. Every Christian is a saint, set apart for God's own use. In a sense, then, every member of the church is a minister. Alec Mateer puts it bluntly, church and ministry are identical. To be in the church is to be involved in ministry. Paul sets out this basic principle in Ephesians 4. God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the ministry, 
for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of, the, of, of Christ. All the saints are called to do the ministry, the work of the church, and officers are called to equip them for that work. So every Christian is a saint and in a very real sense a ministry. That's why when we come to the Lord's Supper in a minute, I'm going to stand behind the table. You as a member of Christ's church have a right to access of the table by yourself. You don't need a priest to stand between you and the table. I need to stay on my notes or we'll never be done. Uh, keep organized here. Uh, Paul sets out, uh, uh, no, I already said that. Okay, overseers and deacons is what Philippians 1, 1 talks about here. Overseers. In, in, in older translations, like the King James Version, it's translated as bishops. Uh, and apparently, so Google tells me, the word bishop actually comes through Old English from the Greek word used here for overseers. But in the centuries after Paul's day, the bishop came to refer to a singular leader over a bunch of churches in an area. So you have the Bishop of Alexandria, the Bishop of Rome, and so forth. Now, pragmatically, there's nothing wrong with an individual being a leader who looks after several churches in an area. And so lots of denominations have things like moderators or superintendents that care for a variety of churches. But in the New Testament, the overseer always functions as part of a team of leaders. There's no hierarchy. In the New Testament, the overseer is, is an elder. The terms are used interchangeably. In Acts 20, Paul calls the elders of the church of Ephesus to come meet with him. And when they come, he talks to them and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see, Paul talks to these elders and he calls them overseers. Likewise, in Titus, Paul writes to Titus and tells him, appoint elders in every town as I direct you for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Again, he uses elder and overseer interchangeably. Uh, this second word used, deacons, literally just means servants. In 1 Timothy 3, as in Philippians 1, deacons are listed together with overseers as officers of the church. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as both a deacon and an overseer. Again, looking at Mark 10, a, a preview of tonight, Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's the verb form of this word deacon, serve, servant. And in 1 Peter 2.25, Jesus is called the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So both overseers and deacons continue Christ's work under Christ's work within the church. In very, very general terms, we might distinguish a little bit like this. The elders or overseers focus on the spiritual life and health of the church through prayer and the ministry of the word, while deacons focus on the physical life and needs of the church and community through mercy ministry. But there can be no hard distinction. In Acts 7, Stephen, apparently one of the first deacons in the church, preaches the longest sermon in the entire book. Okay, maybe that's why they made him a deacon. They're saying, we don't want this guy preaching regularly if this is how long it is. But uh, I'm just joking there. But, but Stephen, who's this, this servant, this deacon in the church, preaches the word of God. There's no hard distinction there. And certainly, elders are called to do works of ministry and serve alongside the congregation. But more importantly than the offices, these verses have something to teach us about the attitude that leaders in the church should have. Overseers and deacons, and, and it's good to spend time on this because we're nominating elders today and next week. Overseers, elders, and deacons are called to leadership, not lordship. 
We see in verse 2, the church has only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Church leaders who act like lords and treat the church as their own private fiefdom wrong those who they are called to serve. They abuse the congregation and they ultimately destroy the church. Proper leadership in the church begins with submission by the leaders, first and foremost, to Christ's lordship. Again, we see this truth reflected with Paul's prepositions. I promise not every sermon in Philippians will be on the prepositions, but this time the prepositions are key here. Notice what Paul says. He doesn't say to the uh, overseers and deacons who are over the church in Philippi. He says to the overseers and deacons who are with the saints, together with the saints. We can go wrong in two ways. Church leaders are called to serve with the saints, not above them or below them. Sometimes we can think church leaders are above the congregation. They're the true saints, we might say. Let the elders do the work because they're the elders. It's their job. Or somehow they have more uh, you know, spiritual reality than we do or something like that. We treat the leaders as above the congregation. But Paul says, no, they're with the congregation. They're in the midst of the congregation. On the other hand, some churches think of the elders as their elected representatives and the pastor as their hired man. People can sometimes think, well, the council and pastors better do what we want them to or else we'll vote them out and put someone else in. But that's to treat the elders and leaders as below the congregation, as like the congregation's employees. But Paul's picture is of leaders who are with the congregation. They're in the midst of the congregation, engaged together in a joint work. Paul's picture of leaders is as peers among peers, saints together doing the ministry of the church. Finally, Paul himself shows us the right attitude for leaders. I've already made this point, but let me make it again in a second context. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't call himself a free man, although he was. He doesn't call himself a Roman citizen, although he could, or even a fellow saint. But he calls himself a servant, a slave. Many in the churches at Philippi, that he's, or the church at Philippi that he's writing to, literally would have been slaves. They probably heard this letter read early in the morning in the congregation before they had to go work for their masters. They literally were owned by someone else. But Paul identifies himself as a leader with those in the lowest social standing in the congregation. He says, I too am a slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. I too am a slave owned by another. And when he does this, he's really reflecting Christ's own attitude as we'll get to in the central passage in the middle of the book of uh, of Philippians in chapter 2, that Christ, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And that's the message that's captured Paul's mind and his heart, his affections. It's the message that fires Paul. And when Paul understands that, that Christ came to serve and not to be served, to give himself as a ransom for many, then Paul too says, yeah, as a leader in this church, I am but a slave. I reflect Christ's own attitude of service. So Paul packs a lot in here into this opening of the letter of what he thinks the church is like. He says the church is a people who have been set apart by God in Christ Jesus for service to Christ by grace given through Christ. And the church is organized by leaders, and that's a gift from God. So as we elect or nominate our elders, we need to keep that in mind. 
We're nominating men who will be a gift to this church, who will serve, who will reflect Paul's own attitude of serving with the church. Let's pray. We thank you for this wondrous truth that our life is in Christ or that our life can be in Christ. Some here, Lord, perhaps have not submitted to Christ as their Lord and so they don't have this freedom that we've talked about. For those in that position, Lord, I ask that by your Spirit this morning you would draw them to yourself, that by your Spirit you would give them faith as you have promised in Christ Jesus and unite them by faith to Christ Jesus. Others of us, Lord, have forgotten that our life is hid with Christ on high, that our life is lived in union with Christ. Let us rest in this peace that we have in Christ. Let us rest in the grace you have given to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given to your church leaders and that you have continually and faithfully given to this particular church elders who have served you faithfully. As we once again nominate new candidates for the council, we ask, Lord, that you would guide our church with wisdom, that you would give us discernment, that you would raise up men who are willing to sacrifice to lead this congregation. As we turn to the table to commune with you, Lord, be present with us. Give us your grace. Give us yourself through your Holy Spirit. Amen.